Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles as we continue our study of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes 5, verse 8 is where we will begin our reading this morning. print on my Bible keeps getting smaller. I don't understand that. If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gained for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields." He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. When goods increase, they increase who eat them. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. Riches were kept by the owner to his hurt. And those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again, naked as he came, and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. This also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? Moreover, all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. Behold, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him. For this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things, and he also has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. Or what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. May God bless the reading and hearing of his word to us this morning. Well, the desire for wealth is almost universal. It is a rare person who would pass up the opportunity to become rich. People search for 
high-paying jobs and slave away 80 hours a week at their jobs trying to climb the corporate ladder, sacrificing their family for money. Or we can think back in history, think of the California gold rush. People risked their lives traveling months by wagon across the U.S. for the promise of striking it rich, and many lost their lives or wound up broken. Or in, an, in our own place, right down the street, think of people who take their weekly paycheck and waste it all at the casino or playing the lottery, hoping to win big, even though everybody knows, as the old adage says, the house always wins. Why do we do these things? Why is it so important to us? Why, why do we think that money is the answer to all of our problems? That we can buy happiness with money? Or that the key to success in life is more money and possessions? That's the message that we get in our culture, isn't it? We are bombarded with advertisements telling us we need this and we need that product or, or the newest car or cell phone or any, any other thing that we can list. Money is a necessity in life, for sure. We have to have money to eat and to have a place to live. So we need it. It's a necessity. But it is the love of money that gets us into trouble. And that's what Solomon is talking about here. Paul said it. Uh, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. And that verse is often misquoted, isn't it? People say, money is the root of all evil. They've shortened it up. But money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that is the root of all money, uh, the, the root of all evil. Now, this has been true since the fall of mankind into sin, the Garden of Eden. And it was true in Solomon's day. And that's why he's addressing these matters in the passage before us. He's laying down on us some wisdom concerning money and wealth that we need to hear today. Now, this is an interesting passage linguistically and structurally. This is a, a Hebrew form of literature. It's uh, got a chiastic uh, structure to the section that I read to you. And that merely means that uh, it's kind of like a pyramid of arguments. So uh, the, Solomon makes point A, then he makes point B, then he makes point C, and then he gets to the nugget of truth that he's trying to impress upon us. Then he goes back down the other side. He makes point C again, then he goes back to point B, and then point A and that's how, that's, if, you, if you looked at it and you took the sentences out and you matched them up, you could see that there's a parallelism there, a chiastic structure. And so we're going to jump around and pull parts of it together instead of going up and down the, the, the pyramid like Solomon is doing in the text. We're going to just group it all together. So we're going we're to jump around a little bit in it. And there's three things that we see Solomon telling us here. The first two points that he makes, he's telling us some things that are bad. So he's telling us, first of all, the folly of seeking satisfaction and wealth. And then secondly, he's telling us of the evil of not enjoying life. And then thirdly, he's going to tell us something good. 
and that's really the nugget of truth that he's getting at, and that is the joy that is found in God and his daily gifts. And that's the three things that we want to talk about. So first we see here, right at the very beginning, he tells us the folly of seeking satisfaction in wealth. He starts the passage off in a bit of a strange way. He talks about oppression. Uh, you know, he sees uh, in the province the oppression of the poor there in verse 8, and there's no justice, no righteousness. And the reason is, is because of bureaucracy. He says there's a high f- official is watched by a higher, and yet there are higher ones over them. And you know what these officials do? They take care of one another. They, they take care of one another and they make sure that uh, they're protected, that they're in positions of power and positions where they can gain money. And because they love money and they are protecting one another, people get oppressed. There's injustice and unrighteousness. The love of money is resulting in all kinds of evil in society. We see that in our politics today, don't we? We see people in political positions. We see them enriching themselves. We see them making laws that apply to everybody in the United States but don't apply to them. That's not right. We see people going into the Senate or going to Congress and when they come out the other side, they've got millions of dollars. This is what Solomon is talking about and has been going on ever since the fall of mankind. But he says there's something else, something better. Verse 9, this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. It would be better to have a king who is committed to uh, cultivated fields, to to, uh, providing uh, land for the people to work and, you know, in those days in Israel, there was no welfare system. The poor were provided for because by the people who were landowners not gleaning all the way to the edges of their fields. And the poor could come along and they could get grain for themselves. And, uh, and that was how people provided for themselves. So if you have king who is committed to cultivated fields, that means everybody is flourishing. Everybody, even the poor, have some provision being made. But when you've got high officials who are watching out for one another and because they love money and they want it all for themselves, then there's going to be oppression and injustice and unrighteousness. So this leads Solomon into the point that he's making that it is folly to seek satisfaction in wealth. The person who loves money will, be not, will not be satisfied with money, he says in verse 10 nor he who loves wealth with his income. This, is, this also is vanity. It's never enough, is it? The person who has money or wealth as his object will never have enough. I mean, think about it. If, if your goal in life, if the thing that you love to do the most is to have money, when will it be enough? I mean, you'll constantly be grasping for more, more, more. It's not satisfying. It will never be enough. And that's the first thing, first point that he makes. And then the last point that he makes is similar. Look at verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 7. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. You know, I'm sure when you all, uh, like me, when you finished your Thanksgiving lunch on Thursday or whenever you ate it, you probably, like me, at least I, I know I thought this in my head and I'm sure I probably said it out loud, but... 
I just said, I'm so sick of food. I don't want to see any more food. And, uh, and, and Friday came around, and, you know, we were ready. Where's the leftovers? Let's pull them out, and let's go again. See, there's a, the appetite is there. You know, we, we have an appetite, and we have to eat every day, generally speaking. Money is the same way. It's never enough. If that's what we're looking to to satisfy us, we'll come to a certain place where we have it. And it, yes, it feels good for a time, but, the, but then we want more. We want more. What, it, what advantage has the wise man over the fool, he says in verse 8? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. He says, look, you're better off, and this is the point he's going to make in a minute, but I'll just briefly say it here. Better is the sight of the eyes. What you see, what you have around you, and being satisfied with what God has given you, that's better than the wandering of the appetite. The appetite is always something out there. Something I don't have is what I need. That's what he means by the wandering of the appetite. So Solomon, who was the wealthiest man alive, was wealthier than anyone in Israel, is laying some wisdom down on us because he's been there and he's done that and he's found that wealth is not satisfying. He's sharing that wisdom with us. And he gives us a couple of reasons. In verse 11, he tells us that when goods increase, those who eat them increase. And what advantage has their owner but to see them with his eyes? So think of a wealthy person who uh, has a large house. Well, he's got to hire a housekeeper and a gardener uh, and, and many other people. And he's got to pay them and he's got to provide for them. And so he has more stuff he, he has more food and more money, but other people, he's watching other people enjoy his money and his food. When income increases, expenses increase. I was talking to a friend who has a business, and we were talking about expanding the business. You know, he serves clients with the service that he provides. And he, he could get more clients, but that means, and he would make more money, but that would mean that he would have to hire more workers. And so he would, he would probably not make any more money himself. He would just be spreading it out to all the people that were working for him. And it would probably create more work for him because then he would have to manage all these employees that he now has, causing more problems and more difficulties. And that's what he's saying here. When goods increase, they increase who eat them, and you have more cares and concerns, and that's what the next point he makes is in verse 12. Sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. See, the laborer goes to work each day. He works his nine to five. He, he comes home tired. Uh, he eats what he eats, and he goes to sleep ready to do it again the next day, but the rich, who's got a full stomach, they have all these cares and concerns because of all the things that they own and the people that they have working for them and, and the problems that come along with wealth. And this is the same thing that Jesus said. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness or greed, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. You know, everything in our culture is telling us we need more, more possessions, and that to be legitimate, uh, 
you have to have stuff, more stuff, bigger houses, better cars, etc. And the person who has these things is, is held up as an ideal. But Jesus says, your life, your real life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. It's not possessions or wealth or money that will satisfy you. That's not where true satisfaction is found. Well, that's the first thing that he says. The folly of finding satisfaction in wealth. The second thing he tells us is the evil of not enjoying life. It's a stair step on what he's been saying. If you're spending your life trying to accumulate wealth and and pursuing satisfaction in wealth, you're going to be disappointed and your life is going to be miserable because you're going to keep pursuing something you're never going to get and your life is always going to feel like it's coming up short. And so you're trying to find more, more, more. It's never ending. Look at verse 13 of chapter 5. There is a grievous evil that I have seen under the sun. He says this word grievous, this phrase grievous evil twice in this passage. Grievous evil. I mean, think about that a moment. This is a grievous evil. It's a bad, bad, bad thing. Riches were kept by their owner to his hurt, and those riches were lost in a bad venture. And he is the father of a son, but he has nothing in his hand. As he came from his mother's womb, he shall go again naked as he came and shall take nothing for his toil that he may carry away in his hand. So we have a man who was hoarding his money, but he lost it in a bad business venture. He's got a son, but has nothing to pass down to the son, has no way to provide for him. And he's going to die, and he's going to die empty-handed. In verse 16, this also is a grievous evil. Just as he came, so shall he go. And what gain is there to him who toils for the wind? You know, he worked and worked and worked, and he toiled for the wind. And what is the, you can't grasp the wind. You can't hold it in your hands. It's, 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 it's not substantive. It's a vapor. It's gone. And all his days he eats in darkness, in much vexation and sickness and anger. We have the sad, sad picture of a man who's lost it all. And he eats in darkness. Now, eating in the Bible in those days was, was kind of like our Thanksgivings, you know, in the past. Maybe you were limited this year because of the epidemic. But we, we gather together in our families and we fellowship with one another and we we joined around the table to enjoy the food and, uh, and the fellowship of our, of our family members. But this man is eating in darkness, in vexation, sickness, and anger. He's bitter. See, his pursuit of wealth has left him with nothing. He was hoarding it, then he lost it all. And he did not enjoy anything about his life. That's a grievous evil. He says twice. And then in chapter 6, verse 1, he tells us again something that is a grievous evil. There is an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It is a grievous evil. So here we have a picture of a man who has everything that his heart desires, 
He's got all the wealth that he, he wants, but he doesn't enjoy it at all. Someone else is enjoying it, or some other people are enjoying it, but he's not enjoying it. And Solomon says, this is a grievous evil. If you pursue all these uh, possessions, this wealth, and you don't have any joy in what you have, that's evil. That's a grievous evil. It's a terrible thing. You've wasted your life. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions, Jesus said. And then he goes on in verse 3 of chapter 6. Suppose a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years. So that would be a picture of being blessed. You have lots of children. You live a long life. But his soul is not satisfied with life's good things. And also he has no burial. I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. He's saying it would be better if this man had never seen the light of day. It is so bad what he's what has happened in his life. He, he has all these children that he should rejoice in. He's lived a long life, but he doesn't enjoy the good things in life. And the, the phrase that he has no burial means that no one uh, remembered him. No one wanted to come together and mourn him. It's a, it's a symbol of someone who is despised if you have no burial. So here's a man who's lived his life and he has so many blessings, but he doesn't appreciate the blessings. It goes on in verse 4. It comes in vanity and goes in darkness. This is the stillborn child. And in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. The stillborn child finds rest. This man has no rest even though he should live a thousand years, twice over. Suppose he lived 2,000 years, yet enjoy no good? That would be terrible. He's going to die just like everybody else. They all go to the grave. The evil of not enjoying our lives. These people that Solomon is talking about are trying to justify them, their existence by seeking out wealth, validate themselves by wealth. And I want you to think about that. You know, they thought that by accumulating goods and money and wealth, that would make them satisfied, that would make them feel like they had enough that their life was valid and justified? Let's ask ourselves this question. How do you justify yourself? How do you validate your life? How do you feel about your life? What do you think will make you be satisfied with life? What will make you enough? Is it money? Uh, it is for a lot of people. If I just had more money, if we could just get that job promotion, then everything would change. But it's other things as well, isn't it? And it can be a combination of things in our lives. If I, if I just had money and good looks, uh, if my children were all flourishing, if my, uh, 
political leaders that I, I am for were in office, if all these things aligned, then life would be good and, and my life would be valid. You look at social media and what we put out there on Facebook and Instagram. Everybody wants to be seen as valid, justified, and satisfied. But how many people truly are? We're never satisfied. We're terribly unhappy pursuing all these things that the world tells us that we need. I was reading a book review, um, a book called Seculosity by David Zoll and this fellow Jason Michelli was, uh, was reviewing the book in Christian Century magazine and he makes this statement, we're busy producing, earning, climbing, proving, striving and performing. We're chasing our enoughness into every corner of our lives, driving everyone around us and ourselves crazy. And that describes a lot of people in our, in our day. And what Solomon is saying, this pursuit is vanity. It's empty. It's pointless. There's no substance to it. It is foolish and a grievous evil. It's a carrot on the stick that we keep trying to reach, but it's always just beyond us. It's just over the horizon, isn't it? And we never get there. And we spend our lives pursuing things that we think will satisfy us, and we never get there. That would be a terrible way to live our lives. Where is true joy found? And that brings us to the third and most important thing that Solomon says in 5, 18 through 20. This, these three verses, is the nugget of truth that Solomon is trying to impress upon us. Behold, here's something good. Behold what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the toil with which one toils under the sun the few days of his life that God has given him, for this is his lot. Everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toll, this is the gift of God. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God, because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. That last verse is a little confusing. You know, he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. And what Solomon means is that he's not going to be worried about all that he went through in his life, all the bad things that happened, all the difficulties of life, because he's so full of joy. Uh, he, he's spent his whole life in joy in his heart, and his life was good. And he just, even though his days are short, he passed those days in joy. Well, where is true joy found? Notice, <clears throat> and this, this doesn't jump out at you because we're reading the Bible, but <clears throat> if you remember, I said a few weeks ago, God is not mentioned a lot in Ecclesiastes just here and there because Solomon's focus is on critiquing the world uh, lived on a horizontal plane that we're just living in this life without reference to God. So he doesn't talk about God, but in this particular few verses, he's saying God, 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 God several times, like six times here in these three verses. 
He's theocentric, and he's pointing to a life lived God-centered, God-centered life. And that's what Jesus pointed us to in the same, very same way that Solomon is doing here in this passage. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. If you serve money, you're not going to be satisfied and your life is going to be miserable. That's what Solomon says. Therefore I tell you, he goes on to say, and you can hear the echoes of Solomon, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of, not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's where true joy is found. Not in your own kingdom, setting up your own kingdom and saying, you know what, I'm, I'm the master of my fate. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dictate what I spend my life on and I'm going to go pursue wealth or money or beauty or power, whatever we might pursue. We're not going to be happy or joyful. We're going to be disappointed in that because it will never be enough. We seek our own kingdom and our own justification. The word justification deals with satisfaction. If you're justified, that means the law has been satisfied. And we're talking about what is going to satisfy you. What is going to satisfy you? What is going to be enough for you? Well, we're, we're, we're to look to the Lord in His satisfaction, His justification of us. We don't have a righteousness of our own. As Paul says in Romans, especially Romans 3, we need a justification outside of ourselves. We need a satisfaction that is given to us from outside of ourselves, and that comes to us in Christ. Paul says in Romans 3, but now the righteousness of God, see, that's what we're pursuing, seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. His righteousness, not your own righteousness. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice of atonement by his blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. See, when you get your justification right, when you look to God to justify you, your life, to satisfy you and your life through Christ, then you can have that Godward dimension, that Godward look that Solomon is talking about where you can eat and drink and and find enjoyment in the toil of life, in, in the lot that God has given to you. You're trusting in Him. That's what Jesus was saying in the Sermon on the Mount. We don't worry about what we eat or drink or clothing, but what God gives us is from His hand. We recognize that. And He gives us the power to enjoy these things. So accept our lot. Rejoice in our work. It's the gift of God to us. And God will occupy your heart with joy. Jesus told the people whom he fed, the feeding of the 5,000, they were following him around because they were looking for a free meal. And he said, you know, you're... You're, you're consumed with getting your next meal. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. So let us remember wealth, possessions, the things the world tells us we need. Those things do not will not satisfy us and will not give us joy, lasting joy. It's only found in a relationship with God in Christ. Philip Ng and his brother Robert are worth $12.1 billion. They control uh, their property developers in Singapore. And Philip Ng sat down with Matthew Yao in 2019. Matthew Yao is a young entrepreneur who counts this billionaire, Philip uh, Ng, as a mentor. And Philip Ng told him what he wished he knew when he was Yao's age, when he was a 20-year-old starting out. And he says this, I was always in search for a better life, a better purpose, a better me, a better everything. I was just looking at all the wrong things, but when I realized there is no better me or better things without Jesus, then it's all snapped into place. Maybe we have to look deeper. I treasure my faith more than anything, so I just wish for everyone to have that peace and joy. It sure beats a lot of money and material things that you may have. Solomon Philippine, wealthy men who found true joy in the Lord. May we also find true joy in the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of justification. Thank you, Lord, that we don't have to find the joy in the things that we are trying to produce or the or gain or put out with our lives that everybody can look at us and say, oh, they're great. But Lord, we pray that we would be most concerned about 
your kingdom and your righteousness, that we are in right relationship with you and know the joy of the Lord. Help us, Lord, to rejoice in the Lord always. And forgive us, Lord, for seeking satisfaction in the things of this world. And, Lord, I pray that if anybody here does not know you, has never embraced Christ as Lord and Savior, I pray that you would draw them to yourself even in these moments. Pray that they would cry out to you for for mercy and forgiveness and cleansing and that you would fill their hearts with the joy of the Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.